UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Welcome to this episode of the UEG Talks. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, today we're going to discuss about gastric cancer, more from a European perspective and from an epidemiological and preventative point of view. My guest today is Professor Marcis Leyer, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Institute of Clinical and Preventative Medicine, University of Latvia in Riga. Professor Leia is also a member of the European Helicobacter and Microbiota Study Group and is an editorial board member of Microbiota in Health and Diseases and Digestive Diseases and Sciences. Welcome to the podcast, Masters. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hello, happy to be here and thanks for inviting. Okay, um, Masters, uh, to start off, uh, in my practice... I find gastric cancer to be always dwarfed by its bigger brother, the esophageal cancer, at least in the UK. Do you think you can give us an overview on the scale of the problem with gastric cancer? I mean, from an incidence perspective, and has there been any change over time? What I mean to ask is, is this a vanishing problem in the modern world? Importantly, you mentioned that uh, that really who is a bigger brother in UK or elsewhere, and in many countries, really the bigger brother would be gastric cancer, and esophageal cancer would be really a minor one. But of course, the difference in epidemiology exists exists across Europe. Very large differences are present. And, and definitely we see the high incidence areas and the low incidence areas. High incidence areas being, as an example, the Baltic states, Portugal, certain territories in the southern Europe, and definitely territories in Europe or bordering to EU, but anyhow in the European uh, region that do not belong to EU. So, Indeed, there are huge differences. And to respond to the issue, whether it is disappearing problem, I think it is very informative what the Global Health Observatory has estimated that even in Europe, although Europe is not really in average the top incidence area globally, the number of new cancer cases and number of deaths uh, from gastric cancer is not likely to decrease in foreseeable future. And this has been calculated until uh, 2040, but it's going to increase. And uh, by that time, the number of new cases in Europe is expected to account for 100 and uh, close to 70,000 new cases of uh, the disease and 124,000 deaths. Of course, in the estimates of Europe there, it's included also other countries bordering to you. That also has to be considered. Okay. Uh, why is, uh, you know, although the you say the incidence may be reducing, why is the why is the number of cases growing? Is it because people are living longer or? 
Sure, sure. That is one of the major, major reasons for increase. The population is aging, people are living longer, and definitely there is higher absolute risk in being diagnosed with gastric cancer as well. We could consider also increasing number of population, but this is not attributable to all the areas in Europe. In certain areas, the population is even decreasing instead of increasing. So mainly it's really due to aging population in, in general. Okay. Marcus, coming on to the next question, I was wondering, um, what is the potential for prevention of gastric cancer? Uh, I mean, we can discuss in a much broader sense, maybe later on we can go into, into nitty gritty of uh, smaller areas. Actually, there has been an expert group working on this uh, for the European Commission for the new uh, recommendations from the European Council on this during the last year. And there are a couple of possibilities really to influence the mortality from gastric cancer. But at least the previous uh, estimates and the meta-analysis that we do have are estimating that approximately 35 to 40 percent of gastric cancers could be preventable. Unfortunately, not 100% uh, with all the efforts that we might apply, but uh, 35 to 40% uh, mortality reduction is absolutely possible. For me, that, that sounds big, mainly because people die from gastric cancer, uh, and I find it very interesting. So we know that Helicobacter pylori is a very well-established causative agent for gastric cancer. What do you think is the scale of this etiology worldwide? Maybe we can pay particular attention to Europe. Uh, and maybe you can also talk about any other risk factors other than Helicobacter pylori. Uh, definitely Helicobacter is a key risk factor. And uh, once more, what uh, is estimated that um, approximately 90% of all the gastric cancer cases except maybe the cases of gastric cancer at the cardiac level, but uh, those, uh, those are related to helicobacter. So it is definitely the major, major risk factor. The prevalence of the infection in different areas globally and even in Europe is substantially different. And not only among populations, but also among uh, social groups. Uh, we know traditionally that China and Japan are the highest uh, helicobacter prevalence areas. However, for instance, currently the prevalence even in the very high risk areas in China is declining. And uh, honestly, actually, the prevalence in China, for instance, in the Linchi County, where the major study has been performed on gastric cancer prevention, is becoming lower and lower even than the prevalence in adult population, as in my own country, Latvia, where we have estimated the prevalence, or not estimated, but actually analyzed the prevalence in general population of active infection at around 50% in adult population, 40 to 65 years of age. So this is definitely very different in different other countries and, for instance, in Central Europe, uh, Western parts of Europe, the 
prevalence could be lower, although, for instance, once more in Portugal and Spain, as an example, the prevalence would be definitely higher than this, than in the Central Europe, I mean. Uh, so it is definitely difference in the prevalence figures. I mentioned also the social groups and what has been well demonstrated in the Netherlands that the highest prevalence is in immigration population and then with the next generation after the immigration, the prevalence is declining. What we currently see that there are a huge number of people coming to Europe from Ukraine and Ukraine is a very high prevalence area as well. So even in the countries where it is traditionally considered that uh, the prevalence figures are low, still this might not be the case in certain, certain social groups. So I guess with globalization, especially in Europe, things are things could change. Uh, that's what you're getting at. Um, one of the papers I read, I think you were one of the authors in that, uh, talks about primary prevention and secondary prevention. Now, I found this very interesting. Uh, do you think you can highlight what these are in the context of gastric cancer? Uh, yeah, actually, this has been even debated a lot with epidemiologists as well. And what we would traditionally consider the primary prevention would be the lifestyle factors, social factors, and this applies also to gastric cancer as well. For instance, uh, I maybe didn't answer the first your question on the other risk factors. Definitely, historically, we know that not antibiotics, but uh, having the food to be refrigerated was one of the factors that uh, contributed to the decrease in the incidence of gastric cancer even before the discovery of Helicobacter. How this could be explained? Uh, because diet also does play a role. Salted, prickled food definitely is also related to increased risk of gastric cancer. But in the modern society, since the use of salty and prickled food has gone down dramatically due to the better means of preservation of foodstuffs, Helicobacter now is really as absolutely main risk factor for this, but, but we shouldn't neglect also the other factors. And uh, having said this, definitely those would be some of the primary preventive measures. The other and very much important nowadays uh, primary prevention measures would be stopping the transmission of helicobacter. So we know that uh, there could be several different uh, means of transmission, but the only one that is completely clear and proven is a transmission in the family from the mother to, to the child. And better the social economic factors, including better living conditions, not crowded houses, running water, elementary, sanitary measures, Definitely, this is going to decrease the risk, and this would be the key factor of primary prevention for gastric cancer. However, 
Also, since Helicobacter is still not equal to gastric cancer, only 1% to 2% of those that are infected with Helicobacter are developing gastric cancer lifetime. Also, getting rid of uh, Helicobacter infect, uh, infection, uh, meaning eradication treatment for eradication of Helicobacter is considered as a primary tool of uh, preventing gastric cancer. So if we speak about the secondary preventive measures, that would already include searching for the precancerous lesions in the stomach mucosa, and if they are identified, then whether managing them with endoscopic mucosal resections whenever it is possible in the case of dysplastic changes, as an example. But if this is not possible, then subjecting those subjects for regular surveillance endoscopies according to the guidelines that we have in Europe currently. I guess the biggest question of them all is about uh, Helicobacter pylori. And I I want to put this in a broader perspective, uh, and maybe we can... Uh, again, discuss uh, subcategories in a moment. So, broadly speaking, does Helicobacter pylori eradication reduce the risk of gastric cancer? It does, definitely. Okay. Maybe can you comment specifically on the role of H. pylori eradication in the setting of an established pre-malignant lesion? I guess by that I mean those with atrophy or intestinal metaplasia, are those patients with dysplastic lesions? Of course, this is a more difficult topic to address, but maybe coming to the previous one on the effect of eradication in the general population in not knowing maybe whether the precancerous lesions are present or not. We already mentioned that it might be, it could be considered as 35 to 40% risk reduction by getting rid of helicobacter. But Alexander Ford from Paul Mayede Group has made a Cochrane analysis that was published in 2020 estimating that um, if eradicating helicobacter, we would need the number needed to treat uh, to get rid of one incident case would be 72 subjects and for mortality 135. So it is really effective mean of intervention to eradicate helicobacter. Of course, more evidence is needed on this, but this is really very clear evidence really to start the strategies and to introduce. The other question you asked in respect to the precancerous lesion, and actually this is more difficult issue because definitely in those we need to eradicate helicobacter, no doubt about this. However, the studies that have been performed in, in China already years ago uh, indicated that those that do have precancerous lesions at the enrollment stage, so meaning at the time of eradication, might still have passed this point of no return when the cancer is developing irrespective of the presence or absence of helicobacter. Of course, uh, the presence of the infection would speed it up, but even getting rid of helicobacter would not 
assure 100% that cancer will not be there. And from that point in those subjects, we need to combine eradication to surveillance strategies. So this would be really the logical approach um, to those individuals. And the other point, the other conclusion out of this is that it is better to eradicate at an earlier age. So earlier, the better. We are speaking only about adulthood, but still earlier, the better before the development of precancerous lesions. And another factor that, although has not been addressed in huge clinical studies, it will be addressed maybe in modeling exercises. But another important point to argument to eradicate earlier in adulthood would be that in this case, if it is happening before the childbirth in the family, then we can prevent the transmission to the next generation. Okay, so that's interesting. So it it looks like when there's a lot of active inflammation and things, that's when things could be reversible. And if there's a sort of burnt out disease or chronic uh, changes, then it looks like it may be less effective. Is that what you're trying to say here? Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. And this topic is more important to me, Marcus. I was wondering, in those patients who've already had an established diagnosis of early gastric cancer, uh, and I guess once they've had their endoscopic resection, is there a role to eradicate H. pylori if they're positive? I guess what I'm trying to get here is, can we prevent metachronous cancers by treating patients at this stage? Uh, You are absolutely right, and we do have really a very strong data coming from Korea that uh, in the case if uh, helicobacter eradication is not performed, in those cases the risk of metachronous cancer is much significantly higher than in those receiving eradication. So absolutely it is a strong indication for eradicating helicobacter also in those cases. And uh, would you ever treat, let's say, if the tests do not show them to be positive, would you ever treat just purely based on the fact that they have intestinal metaplasia or uh, atopic gastritis? Is that ever, would you ever do that in, in, your, in your own practice? I won't. Although, of course, what we know that there might be situations that in very advanced stages of Precancerous lesions, uh, Helicobacter might be disappearing, but or or before disappearing, it definitely will become much uh, less uh, intense. And from that point, maybe some of the tests might miss the presence of Helicobacter. But I think the likelihood that really good testing is missing, the presence of Helicobacter is quite small. And uh, at least our data have been showing that although this has been debated and challenged by other previous studies, that a good pathology with specific staining for helicobacter is very, very reliable in detection of helicobacter. But it theoretically, there might be a possibility that with a lower density, some of the tests might really have false negative results. The big question is whether we can use serology and the problem with serology, and we have also published this recently, uh, is that uh, serology is really 
false positive in uh, quite uh, a lot of uh, cases, up to 20% of the cases that could be a possibility. And the reason for this is that uh, serology is uh, identifying the past infection as well. And even if the subjects might not have intentionally undergone helicobacter eradication, they might have been taking antibiotics for other reasons and in unintentionally getting rid of this microorganisms. So I would not rely on serology, but I would definitely test and uh, find helicobacter before prescribing eradication treatment. Moving on from helicobacter pylori, I was wondering if chemo prevention with, uh, let's say, drugs such as uh, non-steroidals or COX inhibitors, do they have any role? And I, I, I've read vaguely that antioxidants may have a role. So would you, would you be able to briefly comment on this? Uh, definitely not, uh, not um, uh, aspirin or NSAIDs or COXIBs for the prevention of uh, gastric cancer because the risk they would be creating for, for really the bleeding complications is much higher than could be the potential role that, that would be questionable even to a lower, uh, I think the data we do have are, are much uh, weaker than, for instance, in, in colorectal cancer or, or hereditary colorectal cancer. Antioxidants definitely could be... Uh, Theoretically, very interesting. And uh, Professor Pelaya Korea, who has proposed the cascade of gastric cancer development, have really conducted um, studies in Colombia where people have been taken, uh, taking antioxidants for six-year period. And initially, the results really uh, were positive. Initially, they were demonstrating in corresponding effectiveness like maybe helicobacter eradication, but longer the time, less the effect was. And finally, there was really not any more significant effect, in particular, if also analyzing those data together with other studies. So unfortunately, I don't think that um, antioxidants at the current moment would help much. At least we do not have the evidence to recommend this to everybody. I had the possibility to discuss uh, this to, to Professor Pelaya Korea, and his consideration was that maybe six years was too short time for taking antioxidants. So that might be the case. So we cannot exclude that they might have a role, but um, for the time being, we do not have the data to, to really justify and recommend this in routine practice. Okay. So moving on to screening. Colorectal cancer screening is well established within gastroenterology. And in the context of gastric cancer, I was wondering if there is any role for screening. And if there is, what do you think would be the best screening method? If speaking about gastric cancer screening, we need to understand clearly what we are meaning with this. And uh, because in, in Europe, in EU, actually only organized screening is recommended. So this should be also the approach to gastric cancer. And such as organized screening, there are only two countries globally 
running this screening and uh, both of them are doing this uh, invasively. Those are Korea and, and Japan. Japan started with X-ray method and actually that was effective, but um, the, the modification of the barium swallow with, with the double contrasting is completely different uh, from the method that is being used in the Western world, so we cannot really repeat this. Of course, only recently endoscopy has been introduced and Korea has been the first to demonstrate really that there is effect, although it has been really a challenge and it has been a debate from the side of WHO as an example, whether indeed this is the right way and whether we do have enough data to justify. Currently, we do have solid data that endoscopic screening in those countries might allow decreasing the mortality. But this is not really acceptable um, outside Asia. First of all, um, the target population, it is a big question whether they would accept uh, such a screening method. And uh, then we do not have also the evidence that it is being effective and, and cost effective. Actually, one country, and that was Kazakhstan, started to screen by using the experience from Asia, but they failed completely in their program. And according to the recommendations from WHO, they stopped their program after a few years because it was no effect. But um, oh, wow. maybe that is not the best example. And maybe, maybe, but, but anyhow, so for Europe, probably this will not be the way to go. Then, of course, we could screen for precancerous lesions. And once more, endoscopy could be one uh, possibility. Serological testing, uh, namely with pepsinogen testing, could be another one. We might have better markers for this. We might develop a combination of markers for this. For the time being, pepsinogens that are decreased at the presence of atrophy are the best markers or the best studied markers that we currently do have. But um, we have currently this year published in the European Cancer Prevention Journal a paper that when analyzing the gastric cancer patients uh, that are being referred for surgery uh, for pepsinogens, only one third of them do have decreased pepsinogens. So if we translate this to the population, means that by using the pepsinogen screening, we would miss two-thirds of the cancer cases. The question is whether this is justified well or not. Probably this is not ideal. Maybe in some combination, yes, but but still not as a only screening tool because, because of the uh, low sensitivity for this, although the specificity for precancerous lesions is quite high. And then, finally, we could screen for helicobacter. This is not screening for cancer it, uh, itself, but actually similar to the cervical cancer screening. It is screening for HPV. In our case, we would be screening for helicobacter with the idea in the case if uh, the microorganism is present, in this case, to eradicate. So those are the three different approaches, and there could be definitely combinations between them, but uh, definitely with very different endpoints and very different mm, sensitivities, specificities, and 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 also um, interventions. Okay, I certainly find 
gastroscopy very invasive and I think it's a very anxiety inducing procedure uh, and any screening program that's is, is bound to fail if if there's poor intake and I guess in the future as you alluded to uh, non-invasive methods seems to be the way forward. In the interest of time Amasis do you, do you think you can comment briefly on surveillance in patients who have established gastric atrophy or intestinal metaplasia. I guess the, currently, you know, we tend to offer such patients three yearly gastroscopies. I was wondering if there's any preventative role here and is there any mortality benefit by undertaking these procedures? Are we likely to detect cancers at an early stage and treat them? Uh, to prevent uh, sort of risk of dying in the future, because because that's that's becoming more and more common, at least in the Western world, uh, kind of offering surveillance for such patients. Uh, I think we can be proud, really, in Europe, because we we we, we have been the first in the Western world to develop those uh, guidelines, and those are the MAPS guidelines, the management of gastric precancerous lesions and conditions. And currently, we do have already the second uh, edition of those guidelines that has been published in 2019. And, and uh, hopefully, the next version will be accepted already the next uh, year. The work is uh, ongoing on this. Uh, Mario Dinis Ribeiro and his group from Portugal are the leading, uh, leading specialists behind those guidelines. And although we do have a number of question marks, and you might have recognized that there have been changes from the MAPS 1 guidelines to MAPS 2 guidelines, uh, but I think this is a very good attempt, and the best available evidence is put together to define the appropriate um, surveillance intervals. And what is absolutely true that... Um, Currently, the knowledge, even including on those guidelines, among the physicians is not really on the very uh, top level. First of all, GPs that first see the patients, but also not all of the gastroenterologists are following uh, the guideline principles. And in the case, if, for instance, you are taking only the antral biopsies, and this is a routine practice in some of the um, clinics, in Latvia and elsewhere, uh, and you get an atrophy there. So actually, this doesn't help you too much because you cannot really set the surveillance interval. You can say three years, but you do not have the data on the corpus part. So maybe the patient doesn't need any surveillance at all. So we have really uh, both the problems, whether surveying too frequently or not surveying at all. And I think this is an issue of the education and training and definitely the issue also of uh, more evidence, what should be surveillance intervals. We say that for dysplasia in particular, the high-grade dysplasia should be managed whenever possible endoscopically. Low-grade dysplasia should be surveyed at yearly uh, intervals. Uh, then in the case, if it's extensive atrophy and more and more information is coming that also the type of intestinal metaplasia is very much important. In this case, the surveillance indeed, as you mentioned, the standard interval would be, would be three years. But if you have an isolated antral atrophy, 
and it is not incomplete. I would like really to emphasize also this point, only isolated to atrium. In this case, you do not need to, to survey the patient and those would be extra endoscopies really that you do not need really to do. But we do have this issue and in many countries still um, maybe unnecessary upper endoscopies are made, but, but we are lacking really those that we need uh, to, for, to prevent cancer. Yeah, I, I do find that contradiction in, in my own practice because I feel some patients inappropriately get surveillance and some patients are totally missed. To conclude, Marcus, do you think you can give us an idea if there's any important or groundbreaking knowledge that we can expect in this field in the next uh, next few months to years? I, I wouldn't speak so loud as, as groundbreaking um, knowledge, but uh, actually we recently have started uh, a project that is called TOGAS project that the European Commission has requested uh, to work on the missing knowledge for gastric cancer prevention and screening since it is one of the cancers that has been included to the screening uh, policies for EU country by the recent recommendation of uh, European Council. So TOGAS project is bringing together more than 20 partners uh, from many European countries Three pilot studies will be conducted, but uh, not only this, also the information and the evidence will be collected from specialists from the potential target groups. So I hope that we will be able within three years indeed to come up with uh, much more data and recommendations. Uh, I wouldn't expect that it will be full um, rollout of the screening, but at least maybe the starting point. I think that would be one. The other aspect, uh, what is really upcoming, I think is large data and, and uh, data sharing. So even I was mentioning the TOGAS project, but even this partnership will not be able to provide really the real life experience from all the European territories and from the neighboring territories. So for this, definitely we need to have a larger data collaborative where really the centers and the scientists are ready to, uh, to share the data. Furthermore, of course, ideally we should have some better uh, methods to diagnose whether early cancer or maybe precancerous lesions. I mentioned about the biochemical markers that could help in better diagnosing. Maybe the panels could be used for diagnosing precancerous lesions. We didn't mention autoimmune gastritis. That could be one of the factors. So I think there could be definitely improvements. And uh, my own scientific in, uh, interests include also working with the volatile breath tests for gastric cancer. I know we do have way to go there, but if we could have something like this put to the field, I think that could be really a groundbreaking experience. But but I wouldn't promise this coming immediately. Okay. So uh, thank you so much, Marcus, for your time. Uh, it's been such an interesting conversation. Uh, and certainly there's a lot from this conversation I could take to my own practice. Thank you very much. It has been a great pleasure. Thanks uh, for listening, everyone. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes uh, to hear from us on social, UEG social media. Thanks.